Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi. I'm Miriam Shaddis. I'm here at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and I'm talking to Sarah McDougall about her book, Royal Bastards, The Birth of Illegitimacy, 800 to 1250. Um, hi, Sarah. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much. <laughs> doing this with me. I'm delighted to talk to you about this wonderful book. Um, so why don't we start by you describing how it was you came to write this book. It's a little bit different from your previous book and um, it yet related to law and sexuality and human behavior in the past. So um, yeah, tell us your inspiration for this book. So I had uh, no intention of writing this book at all. Um, <laughs> I had written a book about uh, bigamy persecutions in 15th century Northern France, which is what Miriam was very kindly <laughs> before I wrote that. And then I wrote some things about adultery um, to try to, in a way, clarify the difference between bigamy and adultery uh, to my own satisfaction, as well as an answer of some, some questions that remained in my mind. Um, and while I was doing that, I was particularly interested in trying to understand the circumstances of the women involved, mm -hmm. um, the women and, and children both, but particularly the women. And so I came to see myself as trying to write a book about uh, mistresses, about women who were in illicit relationships. And I was particularly interested in women in illicit relationships or really women who were, who were having illicit relations, because I'm quite confident that many of these relationship, relations were not as uh, friendly as the term relationship implies. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was trying to start with what I could find out about, which was mostly about men involved in these relations. It was very hard to find uh, much about the women at all. And then I was looking at their children and what we knew about their children as a way to try to get back to the mothers who were my main uh, interest. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, but in order to understand all of this, I really had better understand better the history of illegitimacy. Like what, what did it really mean to be an illegitimate child in the Middle Ages. I'm sure there's 8,000 books written on this. I will just read them, and then I can write a two-paragraph introduction and get back <laughs> to what I want to be doing, which is to be writing about um, the, the, the women and their circumstances. Uh, but in fact, <laughs> I found that there was no such book. Um, and what had been written about illegitimacy in the past 
uh, either in passing or um, there's a couple of things that try to look at either uh, the illegitimate children of royalty in some cases or the illegitimate children and, and what that meant for them for the priesthood. But the more I read it, the more problematic I found it. I think particularly because of my training in the history of gender and family, but also because of my legal training, um, which is, I suppose, what I had more formal training in anyway. Mm -hmm. And so what I had hoped was going to be two paragraphs uh, rapidly turned into um, an overwhelming richness of material that found its way into a book that I had absolutely no intention of writing. I, um, I have a friend who makes fun of me because um, a, a dear friend who, who does not, um, <laughs> who does not hesitate to remind me of this, uh, that I, I spent an entire year that I was on a, a sabbatical complaining because I really just wanted to write this article on uh, illegitimacy and I couldn't get it done. But what happened instead was I wrote a book. Right. <laughs> so right now, I'm currently failing to write a book and I'm really hoping that if I claim I'm writing an article, I might accidentally write a book because otherwise I don't know how it's gonna happen. That's, that's how it works out, yeah. Well, so um, when you did write this book, right? Uh, you wrote a book that um, really, it's interesting because it, it challenges so many assumptions that people have been just kind of bumbling along with, you know, that they, things that they know. And, um, you know, in that way, the book is, is kind of um, shocking. And I think, so that's a contribution, right? Um, but it's also... It, it, well, why don't you explain what the book is about, okay, and, and what the argument of the book is, and maybe, maybe um, you know, now that, now that this book is on the shelf, now people have this book to go to, right, um, where it fits in with other, with other books, you know, what, 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 what's, its, what's its family, this book, this book? Uh, so, where this fits in for medieval... Well, explain the argument. Start, tell us, tell us the, sorry, tell us right. the argument first. Yeah, okay, so um, basically what I argue is that uh, as, as we all knew uh, and know all too well, unfortunately, the, even, even now um, in modern Western society, being illegitimate still has associations of shame and sin. Um, and actually one of the really, um, really kind of heartbreaking things about writing this book was that people came up to me um, who, who'd read it or heard about it and told me that they were illegitimate and told me about some of the consequences that they even now face, that they were kept out of the school that they were, their parents wanted to send them to, um, just all kinds of horrific uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we've always thought that, uh, always, we have for a very long time thought that this idea that children born outside of marriage um, should be discriminated against it is something that medieval Christian Europe came up with and that the, the Catholic 
church in particular came up with it and imposed it upon the society and that this imposition worked that it made it in fact uh, very very difficult for a person born outside marriage to um, to inherit uh, and especially something like a kingdom because that's not just you know, the, a family property, that's something that has huge implications for everybody. And there's this quasi sacral element to it sometimes um, mm -hmm. that, that would seem to not work well with the idea of being born outside marriage. Uh, but as I argue, when you look at uh, what actually was going on with the law and with practice and with the relationship of clergy and laity, and especially with the role of the um, church officials and their ideas in this, that's not actually the story that you see. So the first problem is that for quite a few centuries of what we cheerfully refer to as the Middle Ages, so from 500 to 1500, give or take, um, for several centuries, it was extremely difficult to, or, or for us trying to generalize about marriage, it's very hard to say what is in fact a legitimate marriage. Uh, there were a bunch of different ideas of what marriage ought to be, and uh, they did not align rather well. And you could end up with five or six different ideas, and there wasn't one idea that was the church's idea, and there wasn't one idea that was the lady's idea, because there were no such solid institutions. People were uh, involved in all of the above. Okay. Even among church people, there could be a whole bunch of different ideas. Um, and it varied from region to region and so on and so forth. And so if there's no such thing as legitimate marriage, that makes uh, there being something like a legitimate birth to that union rather difficult to uh, pin down. Um, so that was one thing I found. Right. Other thing that I found was that uh, there are all of these children born outside of what seemed to look like marriage who were nevertheless becoming a uh, king or queen even. Um, and there were also uh, a number of children born to legitimate unions who were being excluded. Mm -hmm. and so all of that looked fishy. Um, and so I started revisiting uh, a lot of the famous cases and some of the less famous cases, famous for medievalist apologies. Right. <laughs> you don't know about Agnes and Moran? <laughs> yeah, what? This one, the, oh, really? Okay. So, um, and what, what became really clear once I took a, a, a careful look at all of the language, especially from texts that were written mm -hmm. at the time, um, there was a real interest in something that looks like marriage, but that isn't marriage. It's not marriage. It's the mother, mm -hmm. and those are not the same thing. It's a very easy mistake to make because, you know, the the, the most important woman in a in a story, the most powerful woman in a story, is often the wife, 
uh, is treated as the wife, but that was because she was important. And she was also important for her ancestry. And so what I started to notice, thanks in large part to scholars like you, Miriam, who've been you know, pointing out how important women and female lineage were for all these years, uh, it's because of work like people like you that I was able to put together that what people were caring about was not um, legitimate marriage or its absence so much as is your mother uh, an ancestor? Does she have the kind of lineage that makes this dynasty look good? Right. That was especially important if it was, uh, if the male ruler, wannabe ruler, didn't actually have a claim of his own. So if he was a conqueror who wanted legitimacy in a new kingdom, if he could marry the daughter of the king he deposed, that, uh, for lack of a better word, koshered his claim. Um, and then in, a, in another scenario, if you have a man who had in his life, uh, so if a king had multiple uh, relations with different women, some wives, some not, some maybe called legitimate, some not, some both, um, the child among those various unions with the best claim would usually be the one whose mother had the best ancestry. Uh, and so that is a far more consistent answer to why uh, succession worked the way it did than any ideas of illegitimacy or legitimacy that took a really long time to right. evolve. So it's just coincidental that many women were also wives and thus mothers of heirs, right? Because really what they were were women who had you know, could trace their lineage back to Charlemagne or something, and therefore they were the mothers of the heir. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's that you are uh, you're, you are a, you are treated as a wife as a consequence of who you are. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting because it lets us relook at a whole bunch of relationships, and not just in terms of illegitimacy, but thinking about all kinds of things and the way they work in this way. Um, so, okay, so now, now explain a little bit the contribution, you know, where does this book fit in with other books? And um, you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty clear about, you know, you're always kind, but you're pretty clear about the mistakes that people have made, the assumptions that historians have made. Um, how do you fit this one into, uh, with other books you know what do you, do you hope people will read next to your book so um my my main hope is that people take away from it so i want political historians to be forced to care about gender uh -huh. <laughs> that and family um yeah. i want so i want i want this book to be sitting next to standard histories of uh, royal politics and the workings of royal politics. Um, I want people who are interested in legal history to understand how illegitimacy was constructed and reconstructed and that it wasn't something that it was imposed, that it was opportunistic, and that the, the attitude of church officials has really been misunderstood as, as 
more aggressive than it actually was, at mm -hmm. least this concerns the rights of somebody born to an illicit union, which I hope has some implications for how we treat people now. Right. Uh, what else would I think? Let me ask you a question that, that this just made me think of. What do you think it was that um, prompted the eventual sort of, you know, focus on illegitimacy as a real problem in these things, you know, where you have people seeking dispensations or people being cut out without question, you know, about, about these relationships. I mean, think about the English and the tutors and, you know, why they just, you know, Henry VIII was not able to um, choose his son as his heir, right? But at what point did illegitimacy become and why did it become such a thing? So in some ways, the turning point is when the book ends, which was my way of saying, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in some ways, it's still not done. Um, I mean, in a way, Ill illegitimacy becomes a useful strategic weapon, and it was recognized as such, and so it became something that people wanted to use. And it became important for people to use for family matters because it became increasingly difficult to um, exclude someone who was a child, you know, you, your, your children. You, you, yeah. As you lose freedom over who gets to be your heir, you want there to be a way to redefine who your heir is. Um, so that's one of the reasons I see this starting to happen. Um, and then it also becomes an opportunity for royal and uh, church officials both to have a mediating role because they uh, developed for themselves the power to say either you are legitimate or you are not legitimate or I declare you legitimate for the purposes of this inheritance, right. or uh, I, I can't say that you're legitimate, but even though you're illegitimate, it's still okay for you to be the bishop, the king, something like that. Um, so it becomes an opportunity for the people uh, who, who take on that power to have a role and then they get to be the decision maker, right? right. Which, right. which is a nice thing to get to do because then they owe you. Um, so it just creates all kinds of possibilities and, and it becomes an opportunity for an aunt to exclude from succession uh, a nephew or from inheritance, right? So, so it just becomes it becomes recognized as something that you can use to make your life better or make someone else's life worse or to resolve a dispute. And, and once you've created that possibility, it's, it's hard to, to stop yourself, I suppose. Mm -hmm. We are almost out of time. Wow. I know, but I, but I actually have a couple more questions. So let me ask them and then decide 
what you want to say and how far we want to go with this. Um, I'm curious if there was, well, I have lots of questions. I'm curious about anything that really surprised you when she started to dig down into this. Like, did you find a story that was shocking or just a, a, a way of thinking that was, a, was new or surprising to you? Um, I'm curious if there was anything that couldn't go in the book, you know, that you just had to take out because you didn't have room for it or it wasn't fitting in quite right, but was, a, you know, important part of the story. And I'm wondering where it's leading you now, this, this material. So you don't have to answer all those questions, but those are questions I have. I'm so thrilled that you have those questions. Uh, <laughs> so, so there was a lot actually that I left out um, just because I, I was already uh, casting a wider net than, than uh, was necessarily sustainable. Um, I'm glad I was able to get it all uh, out. Uh, so there was a lot more I wanted to say in particular about um, Iberia mm -hmm. and where and if Iberia is so different from the rest of Europe and are things exceptional or not. Um, I really wanted to dig deeper into those bewilderingly wonderful lineage where everyone male and female has the exact same name <laughs> around and then rendered sometimes in Castilian and sometimes in Portuguese which or sometimes in Navarrese or I don't know and so the spelling yeah. you know, I, I wanted to really dig into that and try to understand those relationships because they it, there is so much violation of the canon law of marriage as it comes to be formed in particularly the rules about who you can and can't lawfully marry uh, because at least and by the 13th century there was enough clarity that it was they knew yeah very yeah. clear that you knew yeah. that you weren't supposed to marry your first cousin and especially since you just had your marriage and all to your second cousin, it's possible that you shouldn't marry your first cousin. And you really did know that she was your first cousin. Right. That one is something you know. Um, right. Anyway, uh, so toward, I did want to get more into that, um, but uh, I decided to leave it to experts like you. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see what happens there. And yeah, so, so that's something I wish that I had been able to do more with. Mm -hmm. um, and also because I wanted to do more also with the, with the images, um, because mm -hmm. there's a rich material culture that could be brought into this story um, that I would mm -hmm. really love to see. Uh, but in the end, I was more eager to set that all aside and work instead on what I'm working on now which is, uh, in a way, what I had tried to do all along, uh, which is to try to understand what it was to be a woman who was in some kind of uh, non-marital relation with uh, a man and became pregnant as a result, and what she could do what was done to for or by her, what could be done or ought to be done or wasn't done to by for the child. Um, and in, in my, uh, back in my, my more normal stopping ground of France, um, where at least I, I am more solidly on top of the languages in question, uh, 
think and try to dig into that. Uh, so one, one thing I did want to try to deal with was how, uh, how the handling of illegitimacy among royalty compared to the handling of uh, illegitimacy for priests. And so I mm -hmm. did, I got that. I mean, there's a lot more to say. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's basically where I've, where I've left things in, in yeah. that people can pick up. I read some wills in Portugal um, a couple years ago and, and you know it wasn't what I was working on but I found this will and I read it and it was a priest's will and it was really long in detail and he had all this stuff that he was giving away and he had this whole section about his um, about not his children but these children that were in his household and he was making sure that they had this and that and that she would have a dowry or a dower and, 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 and the son would have this and there was a there was this conversation at one point where he makes a comment about how you know people aren't perfect <laughs> he's like people aren't perfect and here are these children that i'm going to supply you know with all this uh you know this this her inheritance and um it was clearly his kids you know and their mother and <laughs> that is fabulous <laughs> it That's was great i wish i i hope i had took good notes on it i mean i think a lot of those wills have actually been published and i think you could probably find them um so but but it's always surprising and it's surprising that it's surprising that we're surprised right we are the ones with the problem we're the ones who are going like what what you know and right and the people around them really were not right well i mean we have this we have this bad habit of thinking that it would actually be possible for a priest to somehow live in some kind of perfect chaste isolation when in fact he must have had some kind of household or or at least he wasn't living alone probably no they lived with their families they lived with families that they built this is michelle armstrong partita's work you know um, and um um or, or jennifer thibodeau too you know the, the manly priest right like there's there's all this work out there that is on this um for medieval people yeah and this is and this is real family life and yeah. uh and did they did they get told uh, that they had to, you know, drive these women and children out of their homes? Yes, but they seem to have been able to go back in, and uh, and there was at least uh, some effort to do something. Like we've been able, you you have been able to find, and I've been able to find examples where the man actually tries and seems to at least in some cases succeed in providing something for the children for the the mother mm -hmm. uh, sometimes a marriage for the mother herself uh mm -hmm. to another man or sometimes to his bed which is a pretty <laughs> significant um, yeah. and yeah now yeah, there's just there, there is a rich family life that uh, that scholars who work in this area have started to uncover that shocks us, that as you said wouldn't have shocked them, and I and it certainly isn't only a Mediterranean phenomenon. It's just we happen to to know more about it in the Mediterranean, and, and we're trying to, you know, those of us who work in less interesting parts of Europe are trying to catch up. Um, 
but it's uh, it's it's a really complicated, interesting world in which some horrible things happened to um, to women in these illicit relations, yeah. also and to the children, to be sure. But but I feel like it's so important that we don't just focus on those stories, which are in fact actually kind of hard to find. And that in fact, we bring into them the things that we do know and have found like these wills. I think wills are a fabulous source mm -hmm. to get at the history of, of childhood and children. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, on that note, is there anything else you want to say to the to our public here. <laughs> um, uh, that they should read your book too. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, Castile. I gave you, I gave you a little. Hint yeah, yeah. My book is is uh, um, well. It's interesting because because your discussion of Fernando had to make me go back and think about a lot of things and, and um, think about what I thought. I didn't talk about his legitimacy or illegitimacy per se. I don't think. But it was just something I, I just kind of took it for granted. It was a very interesting challenge at the end of the day to, to think about these things. Um, at the end of the day, I think we can agree that, that they, the people involved in all this, just did not care, right? That this was not their concern. Their concern was, they had concerns about purity. They had concerns about um, uh, privilege and rightness, you know, legitimacy. It, legitimacy in the sense that they wanted to be authorized. Right to do what they were doing, and they claimed various kinds of ways to do that. So they looked at their mothers, is what you're saying, and um, yeah, that makes sense to me. So no, I think we're good. This has been fun. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. And you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you all. <laughs> Sticking out this whole podcast. I yeah, we were talking about royal bastards, yeah. by the way, right? The birth of illegitimacy, um, 800 to 1250, which are the best dates, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online at shcy.org.